We're teaching through uh, 1 Corinthians, and um, we're in chapter 6, and today my plan is to finish uh, chapter 6, but I'm not making any guarantees because there's a lot to cover here, so it may take today and next Sunday. And I hate to rush through because uh, there's so much here that's important for us. And I said this before we began this uh, series on 1 Corinthians, and I'll say this again today. This is a, parts of 1 Corinthians are, are pretty tough, um, specifically chapters 5 and 6. Um, they deal with sexual immorality. They deal with a lot of things uh, that aren't necessarily pleasant to talk about. And, um, and so consequently, I think a lot of times these Chapters are kind of avoided, but that's really not profitable for us. Um, God put it in his word, and we need to deal with everything. And I think what happens sometimes, does anyone here have a past besides me? We all have a past, don't we? We all have a past. Matter of fact, we have a past, we have a present, and we have a future. And in our past, and in our present, and in our future, we are in desperate need of the grace of God, right? I mean, none of us are uh, without sin. None of us have made it. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. This is what the Scripture teaches us. And so I think sometimes when we deal with difficult parts of Scripture like this, uh, we're hesitant to do that because we don't want to make people feel bad, or we don't want to, you know, people past to be dug up, and that's not the point. The point of the gospel, and the gospel is not just, the good news is not just the latter half of the cross. The good news is the before, the during, and the after. If we don't understand why we need the cross, if we don't understand why we need a Savior, then we're never going to really understand our salvation. If we don't understand our true condition apart from Christ, we'll never appreciate God's grace. We'll never really even begin to comprehend the glory of God and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, one of the the greatest proofs, I believe, that God inspired the Scripture. Men wrote the Scripture but they wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the greatest proofs that the Scripture is truly inspired by God is you can go from the very beginning of Genesis 1-1 to the very last verse of Revelation, and in everything in between there, you see that God hid nothing. God didn't hide from us David's sin. God didn't hide from us Uh, the sin of godly men and godly women. He didn't hide from us the failures of godly men and godly women. He put in the Scripture for us to see plainly and clearly the good, the bad, and the ugly of life. God hasn't tried to paint some illusion or deceive us or manipulate us into thinking that this is something that it's really not. God just laid it all out there in, in the ugliness of, of, of life, of humanity, of fallen humanity. He laid it all out there. 
But in the midst of that, he has also revealed his redemption and his salvation. And the fact that none of us are free of mistakes. God doesn't erase our mistakes. He forgives them. And in his grace, he teaches us how to live with the reality of those mistakes and take those very mistakes and turn them for his glory. That's what God does. That's the good news of the gospel. And so the point of Paul's teaching here, he's really writing a, he's writing a real letter to a real church that's struggling with real sin in the midst of the church. And he, he wrote that to people that lived some 2,000 years ago, but God inspired it for us today because in, our, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the body of Christ worldwide, and right here at Christ Fellowship and in churches all over our community, there are people like ourselves who have a past, who have made mistakes, who struggle with our sinfulness, who struggle with things that, that are in our past, And our hope, our only hope, is to trust in the grace of God, that God, by his grace, would take those very mistakes, would take our our sordid past, and he would turn it and use it for his glory. And that he would keep the promise of Romans 8, 28, that says that, that he works all things together for good to those that love him and are the called according to his purpose. That's our hope. That's the good news. So we can't deny the ugly, we can't deny the things that, are, that we would like to, just like we can't just cut these chapters out of our Bible and not deal with them. And so as we go through this, and, and, and should the enemy come and try to whisper in your ear and bring condemnation to you, just know and trust that the God of all creation, the Redeemer of heaven and earth, He knows how to redeem. He knows how to make those things, turn those things, use those things for good. Trust in His grace, amen? Trust in His grace. And so we've said this, that as we go through here, Paul is talking about, and he's really talking about the believer's identity, the point of talking about sinfulness and sinful behavior and these things. He's contrasting this with their true identity. If we are children of God, if we are children of light, then we need to walk as children of light. Not to become children of light, but because we are children of light. So it's not about a bunch of do's and don'ts to spoil our fun or to make life less enjoyable. It's about who we are. And it's about whose we are. Amen? Paul points to a behavior and a lifestyle consistent with Christ who is our life. So we need to come to comprehend and to know that Christ is our life. Christ didn't come just so we could be better equipped to manage our sinfulness better. Christ came to become our life. Christ came to put away our old and to usher us and bring us into the new. And so we need to understand that Christ is our life. And so therefore... Our life and our lifestyle and everything about it needs to be consistent with who he is and with his kingdom. So all things, look, let's begin here in verse 12. 
And just read with me as I read through these verses of Scripture to the end of the chapter. Follow along. 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality against his own body sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So let's begin up here in verse 12 and look at this statement Paul makes. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable, or not all things are helpful. He says, and I will not be brought under the power of any. So a man is brought under the power of a man is brought under the power of anything that he cannot give up. Have you ever known anybody who had let's just say a substance abuse problem, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, and they said, "I can quit anytime I want to." But but you know, <laughs> they really couldn't. Uh, so anything that we're brought under the power of that we can't give up controls us. When we become the slave of that thing that we will not give up for the sake of gratification, we are in bondage to that thing and we are in sin. So we could say it like this, unrestrained gratification of the flesh is sin. Now that can apply to all kinds of things. You guys have heard me use this analogy before because I, I don't, you know, I gave up alcohol and illegal substances a long time ago. Bluebell ice cream is perfectly legal. And the law says I can eat as much of it as I want. But I can become in bondage to a very legal substance. And that substance can control me to the point to where it will kill me one day if I don't if I don't handle it correctly. So we're not talking about just things that are illegal or things that are, you know, alter our state of consciousness. And we're gonna we're gonna look at that a little closer here as we go through this scripture. So This is true when it comes to our appetite for food, 
for sex, for money, for power, for recognition, whatever it may be. When we live to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life, we're living according to the world and we're living contrary to Christ. So here again, the point is not that God has created a bunch of rules and regulations for us to do and not to do in order to make sure we make it to heaven one day. God is talking about how we live our life and our lifestyle. This is what Paul is writing about. This is a reflection of who we are. So we use, Jesus is called the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He made that claim. He called himself that. He claimed to be the Lord. And if he is the Lord, what does that imply? He rules, right? If I say Jesus is my Lord, then I'm saying Jesus rules my life. But yet, if I say Jesus rules my life and I let alcohol or drugs or chocolate ice cream or sex or power or greed or whatever, if I let that rule my life, if I'm a slave to my work, if I'm a slave to the business, if I'm a slave to whatever, if I let that rule my life, then there's a conflict. Is Jesus really my Lord? And so here in the Corinthian church, the city of Corinth was like, um, well, it was, it was pretty bad. I mean, today we would say, oh, that's a wicked city. They had all kinds of pagan temples, and they had pagan, uh, in these pagan temples, they had temple prostitutes. And, and it was a very common thing to go down to the pagan temple and to worship a pagan god and sleep with a temple prostitute, and it was free sex, and... It was just like unrestrained living. And we don't have to live in an environment like that in order for something, though, to be master over us or for us to be slave to something. We don't have to live in a city or an environment like that. We can live in conservative little Taylor, Texas, and we can still be slaves to whatever. And we... It may be known or it may not be known. And so some of the things that Paul refers to here are referred to directly because of the environment that the Corinthian church lived in, but they're not unique to the Corinthian church. And so whatever we give ourselves to, that's what we become slave to or that thing becomes our master. So in 1 John 2.16... John writes, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so we would say that those things are contrary to Christ. So Paul's reason in pointing these things out was not so that the Corinthians would have a clear path of how to work their way to salvation. The point of him teaching them these things and pointing these things out is that he's trying to get them to see that who you profess to be the identity you profess to have in Christ is contrary to the lifestyle you're living. You keep going down to the temple, pagan temple, lying with harlots. Do you, Christian, 
you, man of God, who profess to be a believer in Christ Jesus, when you join yourself to that temple prostitute, do you not know that you're one with her? Now, we don't have anything like that here, and we don't even have anything like that in Austin. But this is why Paul uses this general term of sexual immorality. There's sexual immorality everywhere, right? I mean, sexual immorality begins where? It doesn't begin out there. It begins here. It begins in our mind. As does idolatry. As does greed. As does overindulgence. So pick your poison. This isn't about saying one sin is worse than another sin or we're going to wink at this sin, but we're going to really come down heavy on this one. I mean, Paul is an equal opportunity offender here. Remember in last week, he said, hey, you, you white-collar extortionists, you guys who are extorting, you're just as wicked as the guy who's sleeping with his father's wife. It's all sin, and it needs to be dealt with. And so we understand that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Well, what does that mean? And he goes on and he says, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So do you get the context here? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods but God will destroy it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So what's he saying? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Food in its proper context is not only lawful for us, but should be enjoyable, right? Everybody loves a good meal, right? I mean, I love to eat. And I love to eat good food. And there's nothing wrong with that unless I begin to abuse food and abuse my body with food. Now, there's something wrong with that. Now, he makes an interesting statement. He seems to allude here that food in our stomach, as we know them, they're necessary now, but one day God's going to destroy both of them. I want, you know, I, have you ever wondered, is there going to be food in heaven? There's got to be food in heaven, right? But it's obviously something's going to be different than it is here, I believe. And Paul says, one day God's going to destroy both. Both what? Both food and the stomach. But now, for now, food is a necessary privilege to be enjoyed, but not to be abused. Because when we abuse food, we are abusing what? We're abusing our body. And we're going to find out a little later on what our body is and why we shouldn't abuse our body. Or then he goes on, he says, now... The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So sex in its proper context within marriage is not only lawful, but fruitful and to be fully enjoyed between a husband and a wife. Sex is not sinful. I mean, you know, sometimes we feel funny even saying the word sex in church, like sex is, oh, don't use that word, Pastor Jeff, don't do that. But there's nothing wrong with sex in its proper context, just like there's nothing wrong with food in its proper context. God created both of them, gave both of them to mankind for their proper use. So Paul 
Let's, let's look at the next verse here. So he says, look, let's go from 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for foods, and God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise, up, raise us up by his power. That speaks of the bodily resurrection that's going to happen one day. It kind of alludes to what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, uh, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he talks about this mortality will put on immortality or this corruption will put on incorruption. We're going to be changed one day. Our bodies are going to be changed. Our bodies are going to pass away either by death or when the Lord comes in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed. But one way or the other, this body as we know it is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood can't do it. And so he says, do you not know that your bodies, look at verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take, my mem- shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, this is a point of identity. Who are you? You are a member of Christ. So remember, Paul's point here is not, I'm going to give you a list of do's and don'ts so you can work your way to heaven. Because we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works so that no man will ever be able to boast. So Paul's talking about identity. What's your identity? He said, you are members of his body. You are a member of Christ. You are a member of Christ. The body is for the Lord. Well, what does that mean? I think this harkens back to Genesis 1.28. When in Genesis 1.28, it said that God created man, male and female, and he commanded them to do what? He commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God gave man a body. The body is for the Lord. It's for the Lord's purposes. So the Lord gave Adam a body. He gave Eve a body, and he told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And so it's the Genesis mandate to be fruitful and multiply in its most practical sense. Sexual reproduction is one of the most basic methods of multiplying disciples. It is the most basic method of multiplying disciples. I'll just say that. And filling the earth with the image of God. That's what God is ultimately going to do. He's going to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And we know in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the knowledge of the glory of God is found where? It's found in the face of Jesus Christ. Who lives in you? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So as mankind, as redeemed mankind fills the earth, the earth is being filled with the image of God. It's being filled with with the knowledge of God. The body is for the Lord. Our bodies are vessels for the Lord that he uses to multiply his image and his glory. To ultimately fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And all of redeemed humanity, all the ones that have gone on before us, they they are still alive. 
they will come back with the Lord one day, and, and we, I mean, along with Father Abraham and those before him and those after him, the redeemed of humanity will live on this earth, will fill this earth with the image and the knowledge of the glory of God. God gave humanity the capacity to reproduce sexually so that in its most basic and practical way, humanity could fulfill the commandment of God to be fruitful and multiply. And in fulfilling that, we are filling the earth with the image of God. The body is for the Lord. Then he says the Lord is for the body. So God doesn't just use our bodies for that purpose alone. But he says the Lord is for the body. Now, how do we understand that? What does that mean? Well, if you think about Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where is Christ living now? Well, is he in heaven? Yes, he's in heaven. But, but where else does the Bible say that he is? The Bible says he lives in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He has poured his spirit out into you, and Christ lives in you by the spirit of God. That's a reality, Christian. He lives in you right now. The body, the Lord is for the body. Think about this. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, We have this treasure. What treasure? The the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. What's the earthen vessel he's talking about? These jars of clay, our bodies. Christ dwells in us by the power and the presence of his Spirit living in us. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul declares this here in verse 19. God chose to manifest his Son to us, how? In a body, John 1, 14. And we beheld his glory as of the only. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. God chose to manifest his Son to us in a body. The word became flesh. The word dwelt among us in a body. And God has chosen to dwell in his people and to make his people his body in the earth. The Lord is for the body. And we become one with that which we are joined to. So here's the warning. Don't be joined, Corinthians, to the harlot down at the pagan temple because when you join with her, you become one with her. Because we don't live in Greece, because we don't have pagan temples, does that truth not apply anymore? No. The point is, and this isn't about harlotry, or prostitution, that was just a point of sexual immorality that Paul was touching on that was prevalent in the Corinthian church. So we go to this point of why does God not want men and women to have premarital sexual relationships? And the reason God does not want that and the reason God commands against that is not because sex is evil, It's because the relationship, in particular, the most intimate form of a relationship, the sexual relationship between a man and a woman, speaks of something spiritual. 
a husband and a wife speak of something spiritual. It speaks of a reality that is greater than this physical, temporal reality. It speaks of something that's much greater than the pleasure of sex. The point is, it's not so much that sex outside of marriage is sinful, it's that sex within the context of marriage is so very holy. It's about the holiness of what God ordained. We want to focus on, well, that's sinful, and we condemn people. And No, what we need to do is understand the holiness of what God created. And the reason he does not want us to do the one is because of the holiness of the other. He created it for, for a specific reason and a specific purpose, and it speaks of and typifies and pictures something that is so awesome and so holy and, and so beyond our ability to comprehend naturally. But he wants us to understand this. So it doesn't matter whether we understand the context of this completely and we, we get it pictured in our mind. God says, don't do this. And there's a reason why. But it is very helpful if we begin to look at the correct reason instead of focusing on, you know, just beating people up or condemning people. Listen, sin is sin, and we need to call sin, sin. And we need to help people understand that there's a reason why God doesn't want you to live a sinful lifestyle. First of all, not because um, it's not about you losing your salvation or something like that. It, It may be about... Do you understand your salvation? Have you truly come to be identified with? Are you in Christ? And if you are in Christ, beginning to understand how our life and our identity needs to be reflected in every aspect of our life. So our bodies are members of Christ. If we take our members, our bodies, and join them to another in sexual immorality, we cause our bodies, which are members of Christ, to be one with another in an immoral or a sinful relationship. We're members of his body, of his flesh and of his bone, Ephesians 5.30. Paul goes on in his letter to the Ephesians, and he gives us the commentary of Genesis 2.23 and 24. When when God took uh, Eve out of the rib of Adam, not from the dirt of the ground, but from the life of Adam, God created Eve. It's a picture of the church being birthed from Christ. And Adam sees Eve, this thing that came from his life. He says, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2, 23 and 24. How do we understand that? Paul gives us the commentary in, in Ephesians 5, 30 through 32. And he says, I speak a mystery. The mystery is not Christ and the church. The mystery is a physical man and a physical woman in a physical relationship. The mystery is how this temporal is communicating this glorious reality of Christ and his people. And he says, this is what marriage is about. When I do premarital counseling with couples, this is my main goal is to help them understand what their marriage is. If we understand what marriage really is and what what it is, I mean, why God created it to begin with. In the very beginning, he's pointing us to Jesus Christ. He's pointing us to the redemption of the people of God. 
in this relationship where the two shall become one. We are joined to his life. We are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. When we begin to understand these things from that context, and it's not just a bunch of rules and regulations, and and I'm I'm afraid God's going to punish me because I made a mistake or I committed a sin. No, really what I need to do is is understand what, what is God's true purpose in all of this. And I, and I keep and I obey and I live in a manner consistent with Christ, not because I'm afraid of God, but because I understand the love of God and the grace of God that's been poured into my life. And I want my life and my very existence to, to shine that forth, to demonstrate that and to manifest that. So you are members. You are a member of Christ. This is a point of identity. Then he goes on and, and he says, or do you not know that, or verse, I'm sorry, 17, but he who is joined to the Lord shall be one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Here's another point of identity. We are one spirit with the Lord. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is our life. He is the, he is, he is life. I can't say it any better than that. The Spirit of God is not some mystical force that God gives you to give you power to do certain things. No, the Spirit of God was given to you to give you life. And it's not your life, it's His life. So this goes back to the point that we're a vessel. We are the vessel containing the life of the Holy Spirit. That's my identity. I have been made one spirit with Christ. So this, this verse here where Paul quotes Corinthian, I mean uh, Genesis, the two shall become one flesh. This is true when two people are joined together, whether it's in holy marriage or in sexual immorality. So we have this context, we have this commentary that Paul gives to us. And the understanding is that the marriage of a man and a woman is witnessing to all, to all creation, the relationship of Christ and his church. So I want you to remember this. It's not, it's not as much about sex outside of marriage being sinful as it is sex within marriage being holy. Sex and the temptation to enter into sexual immorality is all around us. I mean, we went to the Zilker Hillside musical last night. It's a family tradition we have done. Um, I mean, I started going in 1982 with uh, my wife's family. And I, I don't know, I think maybe we've missed one musical since 1982. So it's kind of our tradition. We go and... and uh, we go early so we can get a good spot on the hillside. My wife does not swim in cold water, so she's content to sit there with all the blankets and read. And then we go to Barton Springs and we swim. Now, we, when we, you know, I was a youth pastor and I've taken youth and we've taken families from the church. And, you know, I don't know how many of you have never been to Barton Springs swimming pool. Okay. Um, if you've never been there, it's, it's beautiful. It, it is 
spectacular. But I'll just forewarn you, you, don't, you never know what you're going to see when you go there. Uh, nudity is not illegal in Austin, in case you guys did not know that. Uh, so you go to Barton Springs, um, women walking around topless. It's not, they're not everywhere. It's not common. But if you stay there long enough, you're going to see some women who don't have their swimsuit tops on. You might even see more than that. And so, um, you know, it's just everywhere. Do we avoid going places because, you know, we, can't, we live in the world. We drive down the road. There's billboards. We watch television. There's advertising. I mean, they use sex to sell everything. You know, I was a marketing major. Sex sells. It does. That's why... You have all kinds of, not just subliminal, but overt messages now. It used to be subliminal. But now, you know, the door's open so wide, they don't even have to try to hide it anymore. They just put it right out there, and, and, and it gets people's attention, and it sells things. And so it's not that, you know, it, it's just hard to, to, it's hard to flee that. But it begins right here. So this is where we need to begin to renew our minds according to the Word of God. Not run away from things, but renew our mind to the truth. Now, if you've got a problem, then avoid what you need to avoid. So Paul says in verse 18, he says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the Bible says that as a point of identity, you are a member of Christ. As a point of identity, you are one spirit with Christ. Here's another point of identity. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body, the Bible says, is the temple of of the Holy Spirit. Why do we flee sexual immorality? Because it's contrary to Christ, who is our life. The relationship we have in Christ is one witnessed by the marriage relationship God created in the beginning. And He communicated, or he, I'm sorry, He consummated it in Christ. Do you realize that? The marriage that God pictured in the beginning with Adam and Eve spoke of Christ and His church. That relationship is consummated in Christ. And this is why sex outside of marriage is wrong, is contrary, because it speaks of everything that is against Christ. Now, I'm not saying that to condemn anyone or to make anyone feel like they have no hope with God. Quite the contrary. Remember, we all have a past. We all have a present, and we all have a future, and in all three of those, we are in desperate need of the grace of God. You can't erase your past, but God forgives your past. And you don't have to let your past define your future. Let Christ define your future. Allow Him to deliver you from your past and define your future. And that's the point of the Scripture. That's the point of the gospel, God has a different future, a good future and a good hope for us in Christ Jesus. 
Because when we come into Christ, we have all been delivered from our past. I don't know how, I don't, it doesn't matter how good and how moral a life you lived. Your goodness and your morality got you nothing with God. Do you understand that? You could be, listen, in Corinth, you had these women who were temple prostitutes. That temple prostitute who was taken out of that pagan temple and brought into the church, and from the time she was a little girl, all she's ever known was prostitution and being with men. Or you have the, the guy who was the Pharisee who lived the most moral, strict moral life you could ever imagine, and he lived a good life. Do you realize that both of them apart from Christ, were doomed with the same doom. They were doomed to eternal judgment. It wasn't because she was a prostitute and he wasn't. Listen, our goodness gets us nothing. We need to understand that. There's lots of reasons why we should flee sexual immorality. Physical, emotional, and spiritual. We could go into all the details, but I won't. Anybody that reads the news and understands basic biology, you understand some of the things that are happening in our culture today with women are because of rampant sexual immorality, because our, our culture has justified things and made people think it's okay, it's no big deal. And now people are suffering the consequences of things and they're wondering what what happened physically, emotionally, and ultimately spiritually. There's a reason why. God's reason is always life. It's not condemnation. It's not to make you feel bad. His reasons for everything, it's life. God wants you to have life. So you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So understand that's what your body is. So honor your body. Treat it for what it is. Amen? You were bought with a price, Paul says in verse 20. You are not your own. Here's another point of identity. You were bought. You are the redeemed of the Lord. You're a member of His body. You're one spirit with Him. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the redeemed of the Lord. This is who you are. God didn't redeem you because you were better than the next person, because you were more moral than the next person. God redeemed you by His grace because none of us deserve His grace. None of us do. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. This goes back to lordship. Is He your Lord? If he's your Lord, then you need to understand you are not your own. It's not your body. It's not your life. It's his life. It's his body. It's his spirit you're made one with. He bought you with his very own life and his very own blood. He redeemed you. You don't belong to yourself. I don't belong to myself. That's hard. In 21st century America, especially in Texas, you're going to tell me that I'm not my own man, that I can't do what I want to do, that I'm not independent, that I... No, you may be. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You are to be under His Lordship. 
If you profess, Christian, if you profess to belong to him, then this is how you belong to him. Lock, stock, and barrel. I mean, he owns you. Period. He owns you. And if we have a problem with that, oof, then we need to really begin to examine our heart and ask ourselves, why, why do I have a problem? I've got to ask myself that. Why do I have a problem with this, God? And usually what I hear from God is this. You have a problem with it because you, there's too much of you alive still. It's your flesh. It's your self-will. It's your pride. Usually the problem is right here in me. So we're not our own. We were bought with a price. Very simply, our life is not ours to do with as we wish. We have been purchased with the precious blood of Christ. And if we are His, we are redeemed. We're not our own. Therefore, because of that reality, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He he reaffirms the ownership here. The ownership belongs to God. Your body and your spirit belong to God. We are to therefore glorify God with our body. We are to glorify God with our spirit that now belong to Him. What does all this mean? It means that those things that are contrary to life, those things that are contrary to Christ, are to no longer define us. We are to flee those things, lay aside those things, crucify those things, and leave them at the cross so that we can move on in the resurrection life has been provided for us in Christ. Amen? You leave your past behind. Your past doesn't matter anymore. I don't care how, I don't care what it looked like. I don't care what anybody thinks about it. You leave your past behind. Because the Bible says if you're in Christ, if any man be in Christ, if any woman be in Christ, if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are now a member of Christ. You are one spirit with Him. Your body is the temple of His Holy Spirit. And you have been redeemed by His blood. You belong to Him. And that gives us reason to rejoice. That gives us reason to hope beyond hope, beyond this life, beyond whatever situation and circumstance you may find yourself in. Our sister here, by the doctor's profession, is facing a death sentence in the natural. But she has hope beyond hope. She has hope beyond this life because of what Christ has done. Amen? Let's all stand. If you're here today and you have never come to a point in your life where you know that you know that you know that Christ is your Savior. You can know that today. When we talk about these things, it's not to cause you to question your salvation. It's to give you assurance of your salvation. And you should have assurance of your salvation. So I just want to ask everyone to close their eyes for a moment. Bow your head. I want you just to examine your heart. And if you don't have the assurance of your salvation, I would love to just visit with you and pray with you after the service. 
But maybe you have questions about your salvation. Maybe you have questions about some things. And you just want someone to talk with or to pray with you. I just want you to know that you have that opportunity. And it doesn't begin with a conversation with the pastor. It begins in your heart, right where you are. It begins with your relationship with the Father. And if from your heart you cry out to the Father, if from your heart you confess to the Father your need of a Savior, and you cry out for that salvation, in the name of Jesus, God will not deny you. So, Father, I pray today that we would leave this place with the assurance of our salvation, not because we've lived good lives, not because we've done everything right, but, Lord, in the reality that we have done, probably, if people are like me, most things wrong and made more mistakes than I could ever count in a lifetime. But regardless of that, Lord, you chose to save me. Pour your grace into my life. God, if you will do that for me, you will do that for anyone. And I pray, God, if there is anyone here today that would cry out for your grace, they would do that and they would know that they have received abundance of grace from the Father in heaven through the blood and the resurrection life of the Son. God, speak to our hearts by your Spirit through your word. Reveal truth to us and let that truth set us free. That our lives would reveal our true identity. Not who we're trying to become, but who we have already become by the work of Jesus Christ. By his death and by his resurrection. By our faith in that. Bless your people, God, and let them be salt and light in the world around them. As we go from here today, Father, let us go as that salt and as that light to make your life known to those around us. Be glorified in your church, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.